Welcome to episode nine of the Portrait Personas podcast. Emily, how's it going? Going great. Happy Sunday. Oh man, I'm excited because uh, last week's episode, a lot of interesting stuff, very modern. I feel like we're turning back the clock this time. What are we looking at today? We are turning back the clock nearly 600 years. Today, we are discussing Portrait of a Lady made by Rohir van der Weyden in the year 1460. I practice my pronunciation. I know Rohir is correct without the appropriate rolling of the tongue that I probably could not muster, but... It will either be von der Weyden, von der Weyden. I heard a few different versions. So this is part of the National Gallery of Art in DC's collection. We know I like to stay local whenever possible. And this is a very well-known portrait in their collection. I think it was even on the yearly planner a few years back. So her face is well-known if you frequent the National Gallery of Art regularly. So it's just a very, very simple portrait Blank background, a woman wearing a veil, relatively simple clothing. We spoke about this, I believe, last week or a couple weeks ago, about how cropping benefits me. Her clothing is still fairly simple, but in the uncropped version, she has kind of an elaborate red belt and some other adornments going on in her clothes. So I knew this would be easier to do by cropping it. So she has a very sheer veil on, and she's looking down and sort of to the side. So I thought it would be relatively simple to recreate in the cropped version. But as usual, there were a few challenges. So what were the challenges that you ran into in the build phase of this? The veil, the hair, and the gaze, like as in where my eyes should look. So I had a kind of white shirt that was pretty sheer, like chiffon, that I was going to use. It was a, kind of a drapey shirt that I was going to use, but it just it just didn't look right. It was too thick. In this painting, you see it very clearly against her shoulders, but the part that's kind of resting across her forehead is so sheer, you wouldn't even know it was there. So I was just, I couldn't use something that was as thick as the shirt I had planned to use. I spent all this time trying to make it work. I'd like pinned it elaborately on my head with bobby pins. And so the veil is kind of tied across her forehead and then cascading down across her shoulders. So I had done all this work to like pin it and it's a shirt. So I had to like somehow make a shirt look like a uniform veil. So I did that. I was taking pictures. It wasn't really working. And so I remembered that I had this scarf that was gold and tan. It had two layers, gold and tan, and it was very sheer. So it was one of those like moments similar to the tricorn hat where I remembered something else I had, but I hadn't thought of it. And so I grabbed my gold scarf and because the way it is made, the two layers are really attached. So I could kind of like pull up the brownish tan layer and leave this shimmery part at the back. Using that just one layer was the exact right amount of sheerness that I needed. And I was able to kind of keep the shimmery layer out of sight, which would have not really worked. I didn't really have sparkly scarves back then to my knowledge. Now, the hair was also a little tricky. I tried, I mean, obviously I didn't totally go all out. She has a high kind of bun hairstyle. It looks like a checkerboard over her hair. So I'm not quite sure what that was about. So I at least wanted to do like a high bun. So I did that and it was very high, but the veil weighed my hair down. So it pushed my hair down. So I did have the bun a lot higher, but then as I was taking pictures, it kind of smushed the hair. Oh, well. 
like we said, it's not going to be perfect. So that was a detail I didn't get too hung up on. And I just used this headband that had metallic gold polka dots on it. And I just put it inside out to get that black band, which I guess probably would have been a ribbon or some kind of piece of leather or something. It's hard to tell in the original painting. Then I just had my own clothes. I wore an ivory colored cover-up and then a black blazer. And this blazer I have doesn't have a collar. So it, I was able to get that those like stark lines. Her clothing's very simple up top apart from the belt, which I cropped out. So I was happy with the look. And then once I got the veil right, that was like success, right? And behind me, I just hung up once again, sweater. It was like a tealish blue sweater. And the background in the original painting is this like bluish navy color. So I was really happy with the color palette. I was happy with the clothes. Once I got the veil working, I used bobby pins to pin it into place. I wanted to make sure I got it across my forehead correctly in the position similar to what she had. This was again, still the long arm selfie. So I had to be very careful holding my arm out or the scarf would go behind my shoulder. And I wanted to make sure it was like very firmly draped across my shoulder because it's super pronounced in the original one. I don't know what kind of fabric that would have been that is so sheer, but also so stiff. In the original one, it's like very geometric, making this kind of like triangle across her face, framing it. I don't know how they had such gossamer fabric that was also completely staying in place. So that wasn't <laughs> working for me. So there are many times I had to adjust the scarf back and very carefully hold the phone out to keep that like draping across my shoulders. And figuring out where to look was the hugest challenge. She is looking not down, not up. And I realized after what was tricky was not that she was looking down, but that her eyelids were half closed. So I didn't realize that until after I posted it. I don't think it would have made a difference. I think this is like an artistic license where I don't think regular humans could. But in the painting, you can see most of her eyes, but then her eyelids are half down. So I think that gave an appearance that she was looking down. And I think I got my eye positioned correctly, even though they're, they're too open. But then if I close them, they would have been too closed. But if it's not direct eye contact, it's really challenging to figure out where to look. Honestly, it's like even an inch difference is the difference between right and wrong. And then getting my expression cracked. And I would say her expression is, I don't know, I guess it would be up for debate. Who knows what faces meant 600 years ago, right? I would say she looks kind of bored or preoccupied, very stern almost. Her mouth is neither smiling nor frowning, but kind of pursed, like pursed lips. So I tried to get my lips to purse a little. I wanted to get it right since this is a well-known local painting that I'd seen many times. And actually in person, it's very small. This is one where it's better to see online than in person because it is a smaller painting. So I appreciated having the zoom aspect to figure out her face and the other details. And I think this might've been one where I had to mirror the, the photo. It's just, you know, selfies, like flip the image. This is one that I feel is with what I had in my power, pretty accurate. With you looking down, does that mean that you were just kind of taking the photo and hoping it turned out and then checking after the fact? Or could you see your phone at all? Yeah, that was why it was really hard because I had to hold the phone in my left arm and then look sort of to the right and look down, but not too far down. So it took many, many many, many tries. I take probably at least 50 shots each time. This one would have been 
at least that it was just like several tries. And, you know, sometimes with the phone I have, you can activate the timer by waving and it'll see your palm. But sometimes if you don't make eye contact, I don't know, it likes to, if it's a selfie, it likes to register where the face is for some reason, which I guess is good for photo quality. I am kind of curious in terms of props. So say you had not cropped out. Do you own a big red belt? Not anymore. Oh, really? No, I know. So there's a time when I was in college, first decade of the 2000s, when thick belts were very popular. So I used to have a thick red belt that I wore in college often. So I used to have one. I guess Emily now might have like used a ribbon. I do have red ribbon or I could have folded up a a red pashmina or something, but this was still when I wasn't as extra with this as I am now. So I guess one little thing before we go into the history, the actual like details of it, I'm looking at the uncropped photo. Is her head way too big? Her head looks like it's half the size of her body. That's the interesting thing about Dr. Netherlandish art. This is what we would call like the Northern Renaissance. Anything up like Germany, Brussels, Netherlands. The aesthetics for Northern Renaissance were different than Southern. And one of those aesthetics were kind of exaggerated proportions. So the hands were small and delicate, especially for women. And so her head does look large. But another reason it looks large was because women at the time, shivers. One of the fashion trends was to pluck back their hairline, deliberately receded hairline, and they plucked their eyebrows very thin. It just makes her face look massive, right? So I think because they deliberately had small, delicate hands and massive foreheads, I think that makes it seem even larger. It is kind of funny. I feel like your crop avoids that to a certain degree. Yeah. Because if you can't see the tiny little like baby hands and the weird waist. Right. In the x-ray, it was even tinier in the first draft. I'll get into this in a moment. Another, some women look pregnant. And this is one of those things, how do we really know what it was like in real life? We're basing our assumptions a lot on writing and paintings. So a lot of the women look pregnant. They have very voluminous, like high-waisted dresses and just like billowing fabric. They just look pregnant. And that was just like an aesthetic in painting at the time. I mean, beauty changes constantly. But at the time, if you wanted to be cool, you had that giant forehead and tiny hands. So now that we've talked about, I mean, we've already kind of dipped into it. Let's get officially into it. What kind of uh, history are we looking at for this? Not a lot is known about Rohir van der Weyden. His life dates were, they're not sure. It's either 1399, 1400 to 1464. We have a few paintings of him that are documented, meaning they would have been described in records or provenance or, you know, the Painters Guild or public projects, but zero signed or dated works survived by him. So even though we know a few are his, they don't have a signature, don't have his date. So any date we have for this would have just been through like provenance records. It's just interesting that we don't have anything by him that's signed. So not a lot of work of his exists. Even though he was fairly well known, he worked at the same time as Jan van Eyck, who is an artist who you might not know by name, but of Dutch artists in the Northern Renaissance. Van Eyck would be the most well-known here. I'm showing you this painting. So if you think Northern Renaissance, this is kind of one of the most iconic paintings. It's called the Arnolfini Wedding or the Arnolfini Portrait. In this portrait, she also has the giant forehead and that billowing dress that makes her look pregnant. 
he was working at the same time as Van Eyck. And um, while he wasn't as famous then or now, he was well known and he was influenced by Van Eyck. And he gained his own notoriety for working at the court of Burgundy. So he was born in Tournai, which is in contemporary Belgium, but he spent most of his life in Brussels, where he was documented as the official painter for Brussels in 1436. And we don't really know how he got that or what it fully meant. He would have painted murals in the city, which no longer exist. He did altar pieces, but he also did many portraits similar to this work of art. We have no idea who she is. She likely would have been at the court of Philip the Good, who was the Duke of Burgundy. And that was like the place to be in mid-15th century Europe. And von der Weyden made many portraits at the Burgundian court at the end of his career around this time, like 1450s, 1460s. So this portrait has that kind of like formal courtly appearance, you know, stark background, simple clothes, but they're very... Simple in like color and adornment, not as in like they're obviously well-made and expensive. So this is an important person. And if you look at portraits in Southern areas of the Renaissance, like Italy, people would have like rich fabrics and jewels and all sorts of things. So it's one of those things where power is expressed in different ways. At the time, even being able to have your portrait painted would have been a status symbol, but up in the low the irony of saying up in the low countries, their way of expressing power would have been more of this like formal simplicity, just kind of like to them that symbolize control. So this aristocratic ideal of control and calm power, it's interesting to compare the two styles, but even though it's simple, there's still like a quiet elegance and power within it. There's not a hair out of place. Her veil is perfectly positioned. Her clothes are perfectly positioned, still status within it. Now, at the time, he made many what are called devotional diptychs. So a diptych would mean two paintings side by side and kind of like a hinge frame. Typically, the person who the portrait was of would be on the left, and they would be facing another portrait of like a religious figure, such as the Virgin Mary. The sitter would be kind of turned towards the other painting with their hands clasped in prayer. Devotional diptychs were something he helped popularize, but we're not quite sure if this is one. She is facing towards the right, so that would kind of follow. She was facing another painting. However, her hands are not clasped in prayer, so it's kind of a gray area. It could have just been a standalone portrait. could have been part of a devotional diptych, and for whatever reason, she's just not praying. Sometimes portraits were also made in pairs for weddings. So perhaps this also existed with her betrothed or husband, which would explain why she's kind of facing towards something. So is he someone where he was, they knew he was influential. So there was work done to try, because you said he never signed any of his stuff. Was there like a big movement to try to attribute and find his works so you could build up an identity of what they were? They know he was influential. And even though... Things weren't signed, so a lot of artists at the time would have been part of painters' guilds. So there would have been documentation of where people studied, who they studied with. So if people studied with him, that would have been documented. So even though we don't have anything that was signed by him, they know his style. They have like the provenance of any work that does survive. They know who he would have worked with. 
So his style is, if you compare like the Arnolfini portrait, it's much more stark in comparison with like the plain background, not in like an interior setting with lots of lush fabrics and mirrors and different details. So he kind of was influenced by Van Eyck and his teacher who's documented as the artist Robert Campan, who was also well-known at the time. Art historians believed he would have been influenced by the two of them for the similar, like very clean, meticulous, detailed style. It's like you see in this painting, you see the strands of hair on her forehead, the part before what I would call the headband. It's just like, you could see how like tightly it's pulled. So it's very detailed, very crisp rendering of the fabrics, but then it's also much simpler than his contemporaries. So all of this to say, even though a lot doesn't exist, what does exist, people recognize as his. Are there any other Netherlands or, or other artworks you think people could check out if they're inspired by this one? I know we've touched on a couple with his compatriots, but is there anything else off the top of your head you'd like to point people at? Well, I think absolutely Van Eyck and the National Gallery has a work by him called The Annunciation, which is also very small, but the detail is extraordinary. That's one that I would go to the website and do the Zoom feature. It is amazing. The angel wings are multicolored. The fabric, the blue color. I think we talked about ultramarine pigment um, with Girl with the Pearl Earring. It's just this vivid blue made with crushed lapis lazuli. So it has that like stunning blue. If you're interested in Dutch art and want to look at some work by one of his contemporaries, I would go the Van Eyck route. Are you ready to get stumped? Absolutely. All right, I'm rolling the dice on this one. This one might be a little too easy. What year was this painting donated to the National Gallery in Washington, D.C.? What year? 1937? Yes! Drat! Just... I, I wrote down... Oh, you knew! I wrote down the accession number because I oh. thought that might be... I finally... I haven't gotten one right in weeks. Yes! The bird is flying. <laughs> the bird is flying. Oh, my goodness. Well, there we go. I will have to, I'll have to try harder and be much more unfair for next week's picture. In your defense, there's not a lot of material for such a mysterious artist, so. Yeah, I could have just tried to make something up, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you could have asked me how tall he was. <laughs> yeah, how or, or something about, like, there's a lot of info on Philip the Good. You mentioned him a couple of times. I could have quickly Googled something about Philip. Philip. Yeah, what's Philip the Good's birthday? Do you know that one? Bonus stump. I'm just going to guess he was born... In 1397. Oh, July 31st, 1396. Oh, I was actually close. He oh he shares he shares Harry Potter's birthday. There oh. we go. Philip the Good and Harry Potter, the, the crossover we've all been waiting for. <laughs> I bet Philip the Good was a wizard. There we go. He looks like one. Look at us. If you see his Wikipedia picture, this guy looks like he's teaching at Hogwarts. <laughs> You just remove all the color. That's Dumbledore's outfit. So <laughs> do we have a preview for next week? I Big yes. hair is what I would say. The next work of art we're going to discuss involves very big hair. It was very heavy. So I had to be crafty with figuring out how to keep the volume, which required some building of sorts. Oh, I'm excited. So it sounds like the first uh, next week, or the first half of the episode, I have some good build stories involved. Thank you, Emily. You are welcome.